You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 27th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Shalom, everyone. Jay is on vacation this week. We miss you, Jay. He's uh, scoping out pseudoscience in Hawaii. Hawaii. No, he's not. He's yes. laying yes, on the he beach is. drinking <laughs> drinking out of a coconut. Bob is back from his uh, trip last week to Florida. How was that, Bob? Yes, it was fun. Fun trip except for the last day when I got sick. Uh, Otherwise, eh. it was fun. Disney was great. Weather was very decent. So it sucks to be back. <laughs> It's always too short. Well, Evan, you uh, you have the first news item tonight, which I call McFung Shui. McFung Shui, a, re- a McDonald's restaurant in Hacienda Heights, California, has redesigned their building, and they went ahead and hired a feng shui expert to come in and offer uh, his assistance in the redesign of the store. It has earth tones and bamboo plants and water trickling down glass panels and and these sorts of things that are all too familiar with uh, the concept of feng shui. Feng shui is the uh, an ancient Chinese concept. It's pure that... magic and superstition. That's it. <laughs> pure. That's right. That's right, it is. What feng shui claims is that if you arrange your home or your building, your place of work, wherever it is, your, your garden outside, your landscape, in a certain way, and you put certain plants in certain areas, you arrange your furniture in certain directions, it allows for the flow of good energy to pass through, and you receive all the wonderful benefits of this magical energy. And this is what feng shui claims, amongst several other things, but this is... This is what feng shui claims it's, uh, it, it does, at least by the experts. And the store in McDonald's received some national recognition for the fact that they did redesign their store based on uh, the principles of feng shui. So I went ahead and actually put a phone call into McDonald's corporate in Peoria, Illinois. I, I asked them if, if this was some kind of official endorsement of feng shui by McDonald's. And uh, what they told me is that it was not. Um, it was simply a choice by the owner of the franchise, and each owner of the franchise has the right to uh, de- decorate and arrange their store appearance any way they want, so long as it conforms to McDonald's corporate standard guidelines. Right, which they wouldn't regular- tell you what they were. Exactly. Yeah. But apparently, they, they allow enough leeway that you could, you know, do a, a feng shui rearrangement if you need to. I love That's, that the the layout of McDonald's is top secret now. Yeah. Can't we just go in and be like, oh, okay, orange plastic chairs? That's yeah. that's great. <laughs> they consider it totally classified. I guess. That. I guess because well, I would imagine that they just don't want people to steal their ideas and you know for other franchises, other brands. Uh, yeah, those Burger King spies ideas. are always looking to steal their ideas. Exactly. <laughs> Hamburglers and, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah and, and that's and kind of the point there, too, is like, you know, all fast food joints are pretty much like the same crappy, poorly lit, fluorescent, you know, yeah. junk yeah, have pile. This, they have and this so, plasticky kind of feel to it. It's very cartoonish. Right. And um, so like a, a, a location that's going to go out of its way to do something like 
you know, this feng shui thing. It wouldn't surprise me if it actually did increase their sales just because it would probably look hopefully a little better than your average. Well, I think it looks, if you look, read the description, I think it looks a lot better. I mean, they yeah. actually have like attractive furniture, nice lighting, flowing water, bamboo, plants and stuff. No sure, rats. of course. You go from brown plastic or orange plastic to a, a nicely decorated restaurant. Of course, you know, it's, it's going to uh, probably attract more traffic, which apparently it has. But, you know, it's like saying, oh, diet and exercise and take my magic potion and you'll be healthier. Oh, okay. Right, and it's totally BS because it's it's such an obviously uh, so, so obviously a marketing scam because yeah. it's increasing their numbers. But you know, in that article, they're saying that the whole point is to increase their customers' good fortune. Like, right. excuse me, so I'm going to come in, get myself a Happy Meal, go home, and oh my god, I won the lottery! I'll never go to McDonald's again. No, well, no. The trick is, you have to happen. eat your hamburger there. You have to bask in the energy, in the positive energy flow of the feng shui of the restaurant. That's right. so that you eat your meal there and you come back again for more. I like how um, they added. So this one restaurant there had 44 seats, but four is an unlucky number. So they had to add a 45th seat so they wouldn't have that double unlucky number in their restaurant. And the entire Magic. universe just shifted into their favor. Right, right. I, I asked the uh, representative from McDonald's if they knew what feng shui actually was, and they seemed to have no clue. And so when I explained it to them um, that, you know, the claims can't be substantiated by science, and what was their comment regarding that, and have they actually investigated the validity of feng shui and... They said no. They uh, they have no no comment on the energy flow, and as far as they knew, nobody in McDonald's has done any research yeah. into the validity of feng shui. So there you go, folks. That's what McDonald's is serving up these days. Yeah, I I, w- I would have been shocked actually if they cared at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, the next news item comes from my science-based medicine blog for today, actually. Anti-science-based medicine in South Africa, as if they didn't have enough problems. Now, you guys probably remember um, that the president of South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, uh, has been infamous because of his HIV denial. He said that he is not convinced that we know what the cause of AIDS is, and he convened a panel a few years ago. Uh, to to discuss, you know, it's basically a panel of HIV deniers, people who don't accept the uh, you know, overwhelming scientific evidence that the AIDS disease is caused by infection with the uh, human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. He has also appointed a very controversial health minister who has said a lot of uh, really shocking things over the years. For example, when criticized that funding for HIV medications was slashed a few years ago, she uh, defended the use of garlic and beetroot to treat HIV and to prevent HIV infection. She said, garlic is absolutely critical. We need to research it. We cannot just ridicule it. Wow. Well, now, in a BBC article, she is quoted as saying, uh, that you know, th- there has been a move for, from her and, and Becky to incorporate uh, traditional healing into the National Health Service in uh, South Africa, uh, which, of course, is a tragic mistake. And, of course, there were, there were uh, calls to scientifically investigate 
these methods that were being proposed uh, to you know to start spending government money on, on providing these these methods as part of their healthcare system, and she said we cannot use Western models or protocols for research and development, and she doesn't want to get the incorporation of these traditional healing modalities to get quote unquote bogged down in clinical trials. Yeah, we we can't waste any time doing that science thing trying to figure out if these treatments actually work or not. We just need to um, fast-track them right into you know, the health service, start spending money on these things. So obviously, given her history, she is an ideologue. You know, she's ideologically anti-scientific in her approach to medicine. And you know, her comments about you know, not wanting to use Western protocols is just a political maneuvering. It's just a politically correct way in, in her country to be anti-science, to say, well, we're not going to do science because that's a Western thing. You know, that's America and Europe trying to impose their ideas on us. And, and you know, we don't want to get our, uh, our modalities bogged down in all this science. Nice. Maybe they're looking to go back to uh, 40-year uh, average lifespan of, of their citizens instead of uh, all the Western medicine <laughs> has, has contributed to longevity. It's, it, it's tragic because you, know, you have a country with among the biggest healthcare problems or crises. It's estimated that perhaps as much as 10% of the South African population may be infected with HIV. They're having tuberculosis uh, epidemics. They have you know, malnutrition is, uh, is rampant. And their health minister is completely dedicated to you know, woo and, pseudo- and pseudoscience and is directly anti-scientific in her attitudes. Mean, meanwhile, though, they do profit daily from you know science. I'm sure in many many ways that they never think to uh, to criticize or condemn, right? Because it's such a part of their lives that they don't even think that hey, science gave me this. Yeah, you take it for granted as long as it doesn't conflict with your you know, religious belief, or in this case, I think just in uh, an ideology. Um, there have been, you know, she's again very controversial. The the academic people in South Africa have called for her resignation. You know, she's very very unpopular amongst uh, intellectuals in South Africa. She has no credibility around the world. But you know, Mbeki has resisted uh, calls for her resignation. And or right, here's another bit that's really bad. So there was a deputy health minister who um, actually was dedicated to science and, and good quality medicine, was, was very outspoken in trying to reverse a lot of the disastrous HIV and other health policies of South Africa. And, they, and uh, Mbeki sacked her, fired her, got rid of like, the one person who was trying to turn things around and do the right thing. So clearly, he has made his intentions clear. He's going with the magical pseudoscientist for his health minister and firing anyone who criticizes that. That's incredibly depressing. Tough times to live in South Africa these days. Yep, yep. I got a lot of comments on my blog about this on science-based medicine and, you know, a few from South African nationals, and they were um, all very, you know, positive about my blog entry and just just happy that this, you know, travesty is getting some attention outside of their country, some worldwide attention, because it really is a, uh, really is a crime. All right, and Rebecca, this next one actually comes uh, from something that you blogged about, and this is a, a, has to do with a claim that extraterrestrials from a level four civilization, we'll talk about what that is, hmm. uh, and evidence that of their sort of shenanigans in the universe. Uh, now, let's be fair. These were not shenanigans, Steve. This was very important to the 
the future of the universe. Creation of the universe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it weren't for this intelligent civilization, we might not be here today, you see. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happened was these aliens, first they made the Big Bang and they used... That was um, nice of them. Uh, it was helpful, mm-hmm. you know, um, because design. before that, it's like there wasn't really much to do. So yeah. they made the Big Bang in their massive inner universe particle colliders. And the Big Bang made a black hole in the hyperspace. And that <laughs> created the dark uh-huh. ages of the cosmos. And um, that was corrected through the intervention of this type four civilization that's located in um Able 1835IR1916, which is about um, 13,230 light years away. So that's got to be right on the edge of the visible universe. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's about as far out there as, as we as could, could see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, found out I mean, all about this just by perusing India Daily, um, which you can find at indiadaily.com. And it appears to be right up there with, you know, Pravda or um, the uh, weekly what, wait, weekly that? world Tab- news yeah. right week, weekly world news National Enquirer right it's <laughs> it's obviously I mean their science reporting is second to none right, right. and what I what I just explained to you is pretty much the whole of the article and if you go on there it's it's depressing and funny all at once because it it's like the site is set up like you know your standard news site. You and sure it's not a satire site like The Onion, Rebecca? You know, I looked around and I I don't think so. It's pretty much all um, crap, but they, they, they are <laughs> but doing it very straight faced. <laughs> they're very serious. It's a what? funny article. It's a funny article. I suggest uh, everyone read it. It's it's com- incoherent. It's, it's re- like it was written by a kid. It really makes no sense. At all, where they where they just pull this stuff up. I mean, if you're going to make it up, you think they would make up a better story. I don't think it's like it's written by a kid, but more like no. L. Ron Hubbard, <laughs> where it's like someone, it works in right. a bit of science fiction, and then they'll be like, um, like take this sentence. This is one of my favorite sentences. The Big Bang created a black hole in the hyperspace, our universe with three spatial dimensions and a forward-moving single time dimension. So you see, half of that sentence was totally right. Mm-hmm. You know, our universe does have three spatial dimensions and one time dimension. Um, the other half was, was from like some weird acid trip fantasy land. And by combining those two together so, um, in such a blase manner, it, it really sells it. You know, it really wow. makes you stop and think like, oh yeah, the Big Bang did create a black hole in the hyperspace and aliens fixed it. Cool. Thanks, the aliens. Hyperspace. I, I yeah. like how, I like okay. how they talk about the, uh, the civilization that created that created the Big Bang, they they identified as a Type Four civilization, which mm-hmm. right. And uh, I assume that they're they're talking about the the Kardashev scale, uh, which is a scale that a that a guy named Kardashev, uh, he was a Soviet astronomer, <laughs> well, created right. to to classify um, how advanced technologically a civilization is. And he came up with Type One, Two, and Three. Type one is a civilization that can harness all the power of a single planet, which clearly we're not. We're not there, um, so we're not even type one. Yeah, we're only at a zero point seven. Yeah, that's kind of depressing. Uh, yeah. um, we're it not is one yet. 
Type 2 was a civilization that could harness the power available from a single star, which would be pretty impressive. A Type 3 um, would be a, uh, a single galaxy, uh, which is quite amazing. But even that would pale in comparison to the energies needed to, I would assume, to create a Big Bang. So he, they just probably said, all right, let's add one. Let's make it a Type 4 because that's what it would require. And I don't know if it would require Universe Type level. 4 or yeah. maybe Type 5 at, at that level. You know, I would think a Type 4 would be supercluster energy. Maybe, they, mm. maybe so. Maybe it should be a Type 5. Yeah. Apparently, so actually, you know, you, know who for, you know who discussed Type 4 civilizations? I think maybe no. uh, Dr. Uh, Michio Kaku. Came up with he that did. He, yeah. Uh, that? I, how did he classify it? He he's a famous physicist uh, at, yeah. in New York. In, New in York his book the, Parallel Worlds, just talked about what that would be. Well, I like um, trying to classify civilizations from science fiction to see like where would they would be. So again, like Earth yeah. right now is it probably around a point seven or so? Yeah, we, we're not really fully harnessing the power of our entire planet. I'd but, say we're less than that. But go ahead. It sounds like total arbitrary nonsense to me. Yeah, it's type, to- of course it is. But here's type it type is. one would be the Krell from Forbidden Planet, so they harness the power of an entire planet. True. Uh, oh my God. Type two, the United Federation of Planets from Star Trek. <laughs> um, the people of the World okay. Sphere from Doctor Who. Of course, you got to include them. Uh, of uh, course. Yep, the Galactic Empire of the Foundation series from Isaac Asimov. Cool science fiction series, by the way. Oh, what about mm-hmm. Galactus Eater of Worlds from? Comic books. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, he eats. He probably, the he would be somewhere between between one and two, I guess. Yeah. He's like eating stars. At one point five. He's one point. You won't be calling him a one point five when he's eating your ass. All right. It's true. Ew. Type three: literally. the Galactic <laughs> Republic of Star Wars, because we have a galaxy-spanning civilization, and the Borg but Collective. S- but still, no, I don't think so, Steve. Because type. Uh, my impression of Type three is that you were able to harness the power. Almost of a of an entire galaxy, not just inhabit it. So I think that's a little different. That's yeah. true. Yeah, like well, we know, inhabit they, they the de- entire destroy Earth. entire planets, and they could do cool stuff. Yeah, yeah they probably are quite up to three. Type two, they're not quite up to three. Type four, the Q continuum. Yeah, the, the, all right, there you go. There the you Time go. Lords from Doctor Who. Wait, the Q. That's the Star Trek guy, right? Yeah, right. right. Okay. And the Ancients from Stargate Mythos. Oh my um, god. Wait a second. How do you have time to watch all this crap? Uh, I don't know about that one. They were cool, but I don't think they were quite that powerful. Yeah. Um, okay. Right. Well, it's not, you know, there, you can have partial. Like, you don't have to be a four That's or true. nothing. You could be 3.2 or 3.4. But this is just sort of a rough estimate, DVI idea of science fiction civilizations and where they would fall on that scale, the Kardashev scale. Note the operative word, fiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Next email. Uh, Bob, you want to talk about this one? This one's been bouncing around a lot. got a lot of uh, attention. This is another um, kind of an artificial intelligence robot piece. Yeah, this, of course, uh, piqued my interest. I'm into this stuff. Uh, Professor Noel Sharkey from Sheffield University's Department of Computer Science recently gave a talk at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, this institute's a leading form in the, in the United Kingdom for national and international defense and security. He believes that robots pose a threat to humanity. Uh, currently, mm-hmm. there's currently there's about four thousand uh, U.S. military robots in Iraq, plus 
uh, a number of unmanned aircraft uh, that have hundreds of thousands of, of flight hours logged. Sarah Connor, I mean, Sharky, says that uh, the, the three first armed combat robots with large caliber machine guns were deployed uh, to Iraq last summer. And apparently they were, they were so powerful. I mean, not powerful. They were so successful that 80 more were ordered from Skynet. I, I mean, uh, the uh, U.S. arms maker Foster Miller. Now, uh, South mm-hmm. Korea, South Korea, and Israel both uh, have they use robot border guards that are armed. Uh, China, India, and Russia and Britain have all uh, increased the use of their military robots. Up to now, though, humans pretty much are always in the loop. Especially, I'm not too sure about right. some of these other countries, but for 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 our military robots, we're always in the loop when it comes to pulling the trigger to taking a life. Uh, but Sharkey, Professor Sharkey, thinks that if we're not careful, that that could change. Apparently, the Pentagon uh, is almost two years into a research program whose aim is to have robots identify potential threats without human help. Sharkey says that the main problem is that these systems do not have the discriminative power to do that, he says, and I don't know if they ever will. I don't know if I follow that, that I don't know if if he should be saying that if they ever will. I think eventually they could. Ever is a long time. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's true. But I have seen I have seen some simulations that I think could be put to use very soon. For example, uh, one simulation I saw showed uh, showed some uh, military guys walking down a street with a couple robots. They basically had like a robot each by their side, and some people, someone started firing at them, and they were able to immediately determine where the shots came from and and fire at. at mm-hmm the individuals that were trying to kill them. You know, if someone's trying to kill an American soldier, then I think it would be okay for a robot. I mean, that, that's just something that can be done. Yeah, but still, that's a situation where the soldier's in the loop, right? They're, they're pulling the trigger. It's just an extension, really, of the soldier. It, it, right. Yes, but it doesn't have to be. I mean... Yeah, so his warning, it seemed to me that he was... Uh, his warning had to do more with automated robots, and, and the robot's getting more and more automated and dependent. And he also right, warned right. That, that we may get to that if we get into a robotic soldier arms race. You know, that right. we may have... Our intentions may be conservative at first, but as soon as there's an arms race, then you know we may throw caution to the wind and just go you know full core press trying to develop these things and, and, and we may get ahead of ourselves you know we may wind up with terminator one problem he had with it that he said it would be easy to reverse engineer and that terrorists might be might grab one of these robots reverse mm-hmm. engineer it and and replace suicide bombers as uh, the weapon of choice or just he's, hack he's, them you know we capture them on the field and hack them yeah um but replacing suicide bombers that to me to me one of the um one of the reasons why suicide bombers are so effective is because it's a, it's a human that it doesn't stand out. You know, you got this robot lumbering down a street towards a market. Mm-hmm. You're going to think, "Whoa, what's going on?" I mean, uh, um, he Sharky thinks that the, the, the way to go is be is a, to potentially ban them. Um, mm-hmm. He says that we have to we have to say where we want to draw the line and what we want to do, and then get an international agreement. I don't know. I think the genie's really out of the bottle for this one. I don't think uh, that that would ever fly. I don't know about that. I mean, you know. He didn't talk about, or at least not that I saw, about the robots, like if automated, like fully automated robots, just basically just failing, just breaking down, and a glitch occurring in their programming. Um, if they're deciding on targets themselves, uh, an error in the subroutine could they could decide that everyone's a target and start just. Hmm. Going, that's know, the again, ro- that's the whole RoboCop uh, story, right? You have three seconds to comply. Well, there was there was. Um a couple more interesting quotes from uh, Ronald Arkin of the Georgia Institute of Technology. He's worked with the U.S. military on robotics, 
and he agrees that the shift towards autonomy uh, will be gradual. He believes, however, that robots do deserve a place on the front lines. He told a, a conference on technology and warfare at uh, Stanford University in January that robotic systems may have the potential to outperform humans from a perspective of the laws of war and the rules of engagement. And mm-hmm. he believes that these sensors of intelligent machines may in some ways be better equipped to understand an env- um, specific environments and to process information. He added that uh, there are no emotions that can cloud judgment, such as anger. Yeah, um, or panic. Yeah, you, 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 that's true. And the other thing about sending a robot in is that they don't have to feel fear for their life. And mm-hmm. all they're putting at stake is hardware, not a person. So it might actually be an, adv- an advantage to send in a robot because they, they don't have to fire first and ask questions later. They don't have to worry about crossing that line. Do they need to defend themselves? They could you know, assess the situation, error on the side of not engaging, of not... Uh, of of not shooting, and also you know it, it may be better to equip these with non lethal forms of weapons as well yeah they, they don't have to yeah, have lethal c- forms of weapons. there may be situations where it actually is safer to send a robot than send in people who may be trigger happy right I think it might be used like they're the, the way they 're planning the autonomous um, the aut- autonomous fighter planes. Uh, you're not just going to send a whole bunch of them. I mean, there might be some applications where you could do that, but it would it will be basically one guy, and he's got like you know six or seven or more autonomous flying vehicles mm-hmm. with him, so that to, to, then they're like one big fighting unit that could, that can work together with one person. Similarly, James Canton, an expert on technology innovation and CEO of the Institute for Global Futures, he predicts that the deployment within a decade uh, there'll be deployments of detachments that will include 150 soldiers and 2,000 robots. So you're kind of like, you know, mixing and ma- mix, putting them all together to, to, to yeah. become a better fighting unit. Yeah. I, think, I think we'll see a lot of that. Yeah, I right. think that definitely I think that's going to be like the next phase that we're going to be seeing is that they're going to be hardware. They're going to just be artillery, ex- you know, extensions of the soldiers, not necessarily completely independent fighting units. Although if you, the more you keep extrapolating into the future, I mean, as the technology gets more sophisticated, it, it does get st- scary to think about where it's yeah. going to go. And we have to be very careful, I think, every step of the way. And that's what we've been talking about in our whole theme of in artificial intelligence, robots, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. As the technology advances and these robots become more sophisticated, become more individual-like, mm-hmm. for, lack of a better, for lack of a better term, at what point, is, at one point do the moral and ethical implications play in here by sending these intelligent robots in, right. into combat to, 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 to perish. At, at where, where do we start drawing lines? Yeah, they, but they wouldn't necessarily need to be self-aware and sentient. They just need to be, you know... Just have sophisticated subroutines. So. Right. Why would you need to program anything more than making them you know, well, a super efficient I guess, it de- I guess it depends. It depends on what kind of tasks you're expecting these robots to do. The more sophisticated the tasks you're going to ask these, these things to do, the more, the more advanced the, uh, the technology needs mm-hmm. to be, the more perhaps conscious these things need to be in order to achieve those tasks. It's interesting. It's very interesting to see where this is going to go in, yeah. in the coming decades. I'm just waiting until the day I can get my own mecha. You know, yeah. those big things with the <laughs> guns, absolutely. like an eco-squad, that awesome cartoon. Pow! Yeah. That's cool. It's going to be rad. That's so I think cool. that's what we need to focus on. <laughs> right. No, it's true. I mean, we make it to the point where soldiers are wearing robots, like as an exoskeleton. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. A lot of absolutely. advantages to that as well. Oh, was that what it was? Exo-squad? Or was it eco-squad? You know, the cartoon. Those are two different shows. Yeah. Uh. 
The Eco Squad went around, you know, like saving trees and stuff. I'm even thinking of Captain Planet. Yeah, no, I think it was Exo Squad. Anyway, it was awesome. Go on. (laughs) Well, let's move on to some of your emails. The first one comes from Michael Schrode from Evansville, USA. And Michael writes... I would like to know what books you would recommend for a beginning skeptic. I have had The Demon Haunted World since it first came out, but would like to expand my library. What magazines would you recommend for one to subscribe to? Well, first let's talk about books. Uh, you know, Michael mentions The Demon Haunted World, which was written by Carl Sagan, and that I do think that probably is a good first book for any beginning skeptic to oh, read. Definitely. You know, Carl Sagan was extremely accessible you know, was the archetype of the scientist you know, uh, popularizer, and of course also was a consummate skeptic. A pleasure to read. Uh, that, that's that's an excellent starting point. But we did all the you know, the four of us all picked you know five or so books to discuss. Um, so uh, Evan, why don't you do one of your books first? We'll just go around and just discuss books one by one. The first book I ever read by Mr. James Randi, mm-hmm. uh, Flim Flam. Classic. Psychics, ESP, Unicorns, and Other Delusions by James Rand. Mm-hmm. Wow, what, you know, what a great book. And he just touches on so many things in here. Obviously, all of the experiences that that he's done as far as, you know, testing people for, for psychic powers and claims and, and so forth. He uh, talks about um, one, t- one chapter is entitled Fairies at the Foot of the Garden, which is about the Cottingly Fairy controversy from, from early on uh, in the 20th century and how... Uh, Arthur Don't, Arthur Conan Doyle, the uh, author of the Sherlock Holmes series of books, got uh, duped into believing that fairies uh, existed because of these photographs, these fake photographs that existed. By a couple of little was, girls. Yeah, it was an excellent example of how someone who's obviously very bright and intelligent can be totally flim-flammed uh, by, a by, of by something yeah, ra- rather simple. Incredible. It was yeah. It was just cardboard cutouts. Amongst the other things he talks about in this book, you know, he goes into the uh, mythology of the Bermuda Triangle gurus. He talks about uh, uh, psi and testing uh, people for for these psi powers they claim to have. Uh, he talks and he talks about. I think most importantly, a chapter here titled "The Will to Believe," mm-hmm. and that that is certainly the running theme through just about everything we talk about here on the show and skepticism in general mm-hmm. and people's need to believe in things and how that really penetrates all these pseudoscientific beliefs uh that that people that people have really deep to the core and that really is the uh the heart of right. of of understanding pseudoscience so an excellent book by James. Yep, that's Randy. also definitely on the short list and you know in picking our books to talk about tonight we often would you know, pick one book by an author to sort of represent them. And Randy has written many excellent books like, you know, The Faith Healers and The Mask of Nostradamus. They're, you know, we recommend all of them. But Flim Flam is certainly a good sort of all-purpose skeptical It's definitely the good with. starter. Yeah, a good starter. Rebecca, what do you, what do you got on tap? Um, well, I think a good um, companion to Flim Flam is The Psychic Mafia by M. Lamar Keen. Mm-hmm. And it's, it can be kind of tough to find because I don't think that it's in print right now. Um, but go on Amazon and or check your local used bookstore. It's definitely worth it. M. Lamar Keen was a... Uh, a working psychic. He was at all the, the major, like, psychic camps where people would go and they would just, you know, rip off thousands of people, um, wholesale. 
and he made a crap load of money and then ended up having a, a sudden turnaround and deciding that he didn't want to scam people anymore. And from then on, he um, decided to reveal all the secrets of the trade. And he did it in this book, The Psychic Mafia. And it's a fascinating tale of what it's like, um, what the whole psychic industry is like from the inside. And it's also interesting that he wrote all this and published it and for his trouble, he got not only harassed by his former colleagues, but he was shot at and literally shot. Um, mm-hmm. He was gunned down on the street. He would have died if there hadn't been an EMT right there. Um, and he's, he's now, I, I believe he's living under a different name and he's in hiding because he's pretty sure that the psychics will kill him if <laughs> he's found because that's how in-depth this book goes into the whole psychic scam industry Mm -hmm. so highly recommend it's a it's a fast read and it definitely should be on your bookshelf if you can find it bob what's your top choice uh the first one that came to mind was the um the first book the very first skeptical book that i that i read beginning to end uh, many years ago, it's Pseudoscience and the Paranormal by Terrence Hines, who we have interviewed. He's a psychologist and, and neuroscientist. And, of course, the the book, just the cover of the book attracted me to, which is with a black cover with like these two, kind of like these two dancing skeletal things on it. So, of course, uh, it drew me to it. And I, I remember deciding that, well, I got to really just read a, a skeptical book beginning to end and, and really learn some of this stuff and I just could not put it down. He deals with a lot, you know a lot of the, uh, the stuff you would expect, UFO landings and alien abductions, haunted houses, uh, talking to the dead and miracle cures. He goes into evidence, you know, what evidence are, that people claim uh, for these paranormal phenomena and, uh, and then why, pe- why do people continue to believe in the reality of the supernatural. So I, I definitely would recommend that, and especially uh, it's, he's uh, updated it and revised it, so it's really got um, the latest stuff in it. So uh, yeah. definitely check, check that book out, Pseudoscience and the Paranormal by Terrence Hines. Great choice. How about well, you, Steve? I, I think on the top of my list, is, and I know I've mentioned this book before on the show, is How We Know What Isn't So by Thomas uh, Kilovich, yeah. where he goes, over, he goes over, as the subtitle of the book, The Fallibility of Human Reason in Everyday Life. That's exactly what it is. And just to give you one example, it's we, why do wives think that their husbands always leave the seat up when the husbands think they always put the seat down? Those are two mutually incompatible beliefs, and yet so many people do that. How does it, how does it happen that we get to that? And he goes over, you know, for example, the uh, you know confirmation bias and, and uh, perception bias, and you know, you not remembering non-events. So you know, husbands always remember when they put the seat down because that's an event that means something to them, but they don't obviously remember when they forgot to put it down. So by their biased perspective, they always put it down, and women only notice and remember when they get the, when they get in there or sit down and it's not and it's not down or he also goes over lots of statistical fallacies that we t- we tend to make for example the fact that there's no such thing as the hot hands phenomenon and i i can't tell you yeah. how many sports enthusiasts i've had this conversation with and people cannot get this it is no, so yeah. hard they you know, the idea that there are no sh- there's no streaks 
that right. the streakiness is purely, at least in professional sports, where you know you, where you have some professional level of consistency. There's 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 really no streakiness. It's all just randomness. It's the the amount of streaks are exactly what you would predict with a random series. So if you go by it's like shooting baskets, if you say, all right, this guy hits, he has a fifty percent success rate in shooting baskets, and then you just you know computer model or statistically model how often he should get three or four in a row or five in a row or miss three or four or five in a row. Most players do exactly what what randomness would predict, and yet people have all these superstitious beliefs about, well, if you make one basket, then you're more confident, you're more likely to make another one, you get, you get quote-unquote hot hands, you get in the zone. It's all crap. None of it exists. It's all a complete mm. illusion that is that is almost universally believed by by those who watch sports, and that's just a couple of little pieces of this book. He goes over you know dozens and dozens of example like that. It really is like just uncluttering your mind of all this crap that we uh, um, that we believe and that and all the wrong ways in which we think. That's a great one. It is. I think that, that I that's definitely on my must read list. Yeah, for, and it reminds it reminds me a lot of um, quirkology, which is. Another one that I think everybody should have in that it's um, Quirkology by Richard Wiseman, who we've had on the show a number of times. It's incredibly yeah. amusing and fun. And it's it's all about the science of the everyday and looking at just the seemingly normal, banal things like pickup lines and seeing what the science is behind them, what actually works as opposed to what you think might work, um, and comparing our perception to what's true. So I, th- I think it's very much in the same vein, and people might enjoy that one as well. Bob, what's another one you got? Uh, from a pure science um, standpoint, I, ha- I have to mention Einstein's Relativity and the Quantum Revolution, Modern Physics for Non-Scientists. This is by Richard Wolfson. He is the Benjamin F. Whistler Professor of Physics at Middlebury. This one really sticks in my mind. Now, I didn't. this is actually on uh, from the teaching company, and it's on... Uh, you have a choice of, of transcripts or audio tapes or DVDs. I've listened to it many, many, many times. It's actually it's been a few years since I've listened to it, but I've listened to it over and over. And what, why this really sticks in my mind is that it, it covers two two of the great sciences of the 20th century: uh, quantum mechanics and and relativity, both general and special. Uh, but not only that. There, his approach. He's probably one of the best uh, teachers I've I've listened to. He, his approach is very interesting. He's just not giving you you know these dry facts and here's the theory and and here's what we believe. He goes through you know what some of the anomalies were in the early 1900s uh, in science uh, that caused us to think that there were, there's something more out there and that led to uh, the quantum revolution and and relativity. And he and I lo- just loved how he went through you know here here were the Couple big anomalies, like say in Mercury's orbit or the or the ultraviolet catastrophe. So here here were some of the the remaining anomalies in classical physics and and how that led to the two sciences that just dominated the 20th century. And he the way he teaches it was just so so interesting yeah. and so fascinating. And he, his explanations are just so so beautiful that uh, it's always stuck in my mind. Even this is probably ten years ago. I, I first listened to it. Yeah, I listened and, uh, to it that too. I think I borrowed borrowed your. Copy, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, what struck me too was that he go he, he walks you through historically how. Yep. 
uh, we developed our ideas, whether it was quantum mechanics or uh, or physics and uh, special and general relativity, you know, in a, in such a way that that it's you you see how the conclusions are kind of unavoidable, and. Uh, you know, and it, it, I think that's a really good way to teach that because an individual's learning, like the kind of questions you ask and think, and then how you lead from one step to the next, one step to the next, does you know recapitulate the pathway that that we took as a species. You know, as the, when the scientists were figuring this out, they went through the same process yep. of making assumptions and asking questions and going through it. So I think it's a great way to teach that kind of subject matter. It really gets to how we know what we know, not just here are the facts. This is how we came to these conclusions. Excellent. Um, Evan, what's your second one? The book is entitled Sham, How the Self-Help, how the Self-Help Movement Made America Helpless by Steve Salerno. We've had Steve on our show a couple yeah, of times. Fun. If you want to go back and listen, episodes 8 and episode 55. Steve Salerno is an expert in, or, or spent years researching the self-help and actualization movement. Get it? S-H-A-M, sham. Um. And it, it, he, takes on, he takes on the Dr. Phil's, Dr. Laura, Tony Robbins, John Gray, these sorts of people who have who you know collectively those people um, take tens of billions of dollars every year from people between their books and their products and everything else you know that 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 they peddle uh, in the name of teaching people how to help themselves through various processes and and uh, schemes and so forth and the net result of all of it is is zero mm-hmm. i mean really it it it, it just does not pay off in the end to any to any um, to any benefit. Motivational speakers, he goes, you know, directly uh, into that and how uh, how they're basically a big waste of, waste of time and money for companies to uh, to invest in. It's uh, he's he's funny and witty at times when he needs to be, and there are also some facts in here that you know almost you know brought me to tears about how. Uh, some of these stories about how some of these people really got uh, really got scammed hard mm-hmm. uh, by these self help movements. So, Sham by Steve Salerno, very good book. Rebecca, was Quirkology your second one, or do you have another one? Was that well, one of your have, books? <laughs> I have a ton. Um, we got to do another one. How about along the same lines as what Bob mentioned? I think it's important for the well-learned, well-read skeptic to not just have um, skeptical books, but also sciencey books because there's, it's important to to remember the the beauty of science and the natural world um, at the same time that you're debunking all the pseudoscience. So with that in mind, I have to say everybody needs to have surely you're joking Mr. Feynman on their shelf Um, Mm -hmm. because Richard Feynman has such Mm. an a contagious love of the world that I mean, just reading uh, his stuff is so inspiring to me. Like um, he's funny, he's down to earth, but he's just insatiably curious. And it, it's a really good reminder of, I think the way we all should be when we look around and, you know, you look at the world and you say, well, how does that work? He really inspires that for me. So I definitely recommend people get that one. Yeah, Feynman's, uh, he's great. My next one's a little bit unusual. It's, I want to talk about, it's really 
just a representation of this type of book. This is UFOs, A Scientific Debate, edited by Carl Sagan and Thornton Page. It's obviously very useful to try to understand the UFO phenomenon. But uh, this is a series of essays that were actually presented at a, at a conference that was dedicated to you know a scientific debate of the UFO question. But what's interesting about this book is that it was originally published in 1972. I actually bought it not realizing that, but I was glad that I did. What's really interesting about this is is when you read what the UFO proponents were saying, you know, now 36 years ago, and how similar it was to the kind of things that they're saying now, except for the fact that all of their best cases have completely turned over. They were all different. Hmm. So hmm. Uh, it, I think, and, and what I what I think this is a good representation of is that it's very useful to pick a pseudoscience that's been around for a long time or you just one that from history and read about the kind of things that people were saying. And it teaches you that there, you know, from a certain point of view, there really is nothing new under the sun. People make the same sort of logical mistakes as they, as they always have, that the, the same arguments were being used then. You know, the fact that it, back, you know, what's most interesting is that the, the UFO proponents back in 1972 were utterly convinced that definitive proof of alien visitation was just around the corner. I mean, that was a very common theme in, in, in all of their, their talks and the, the writing in this book. It was really just around the corner. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. You know, the government's hiding this, but they can't do it for long. And, of course, it's 36 years later, and they've been treading water for 36 years. You know, they've made no progress. The, the details have changed, but not the, not the, uh, the nature of, of it at all. And I found that to be very enlightening. So I do recommend reading the history of any you know, pseudoscience that you're interested in. Um, I, it's, it's, it's extremely enlightening. Another example that reminds me of is something that's, that's, uh, that I deal with a lot is uh, like snake oil, you know, patent medicines. Um, mm. You read some of the uh, just historical accounts of snake oil salesmen from 100, 200 years ago. It's the same shtick. It's yeah. the exact mm. same shtick as the uh, supplement industry today. It really is no different at all. It's, it's same burger, uh, different wrapper. Absolutely, absolutely. Sure. Evan, give us another one. Why Darwin Matters by Michael Sherman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had actually just recently read, read this book. He discusses in this book about you know basically the significance of you know Charles Darwin. And Sir Alfred Russell Wallace, to a lesser extent, but really based based on Darwin, and why understanding Darwin, why understanding the theory of evolution, and and Darwin's writings in the Origin of Species, um, still is obviously playing a very important role in our society, especially in American uh, society today, and affects really um, the heart of our biggest questions about science and how we approach science, how we understand science today. And it really all ties, you know, back to um, Darwin and, mm-hmm. and theory of evolution, origin of species. And to better understand that is to better understand the challenges today we have of, uh, of being on top of our science today. The two are, are forever related, and um, it's just so important to, to, uh, to understand the, the importance of, uh, of what that means today. Mm-hmm. And since we're talking about Michael Shermer, again, he's another one. 
another skeptic who has written a, a series of books. And he actually he quit his day job to dedicate himself fully to doing this. So he's, he's been very, very prolific. His first book was Why People Believe Weird Things, Pseudoscience, Superstition, mm. and Other Confusions of Our Time. And that's also a good skeptical primer. It's also a good one to start with. Um, because it just goes over a lot of the basic kind of stuff that that we talk about and then gives some specific examples, including going over uh, creationism and Holocaust denial and things like that. So that's a, uh, another good first-time skeptical book to read. Got any more, Bob? Um, another one I read, which is kind of like a fusion of, uh, of skepticism and science. It's called A Physicist's Guide to Skepticism um, by physicist Milton A. Rothman. Uh, this one was... I really enjoyed this one because, as I said, it it teaches you the science behind a, a lot of uh, a lot of these pseudoscientific claims. He discusses things. Well, how do we know perpetual motion is impossible? What does science have to say about that? How do we know that you can't make energy out of nothing? He mm-hmm. also he also discusses what he calls laws of permission and laws of denial. Laws of permission tell us what kind of action nature allows. Laws of denial tells us what kind of actions nature does not allow. He talks about verification and falsification. He describes what makes a proper theory and, and, and how, a lo- how a lot of these paranormal beliefs fail when it comes to you know, exactly what science has to say about them. So this, mm-hmm. was, uh, this was a good book. Again, this is written, it's not too old, but it's, it's been a little while, but it's still, uh, it's still very valid. Yeah, that's a good approach because that, that's a lot of what we do. Like when we yep, do the exactly. free energy claims, like you'll follow the energy. Where is it coming from? You know, there's just apply some basic laws of physics, uh, and also I think it's it's so important to to recognize that there are some laws of physics that are so well established that you cannot just casually toss them aside with the rhetoric of well, we don't know everything, and no, there are some things that are just. You know, you, you cannot ignore them. They're, they're just too, too, too well established. I've got another good one. All right, let's hear it. Okay, I think that it's important when you're debating uh, believers, it's really good to have that believer kind of perspective. And so to get that, I recommend everybody go out and get Them, Adventures with Extremists by John Ronson. And people outside the UK might not be... Um, aware of John Ronson. He is fabulous and you can find a lot of his, like you can find YouTube videos of him if you do a search or also he's been on This American Life a number of times. And he's so funny and so um, insightful. What he does is he basically befriends crazy people and just tells their stories. So, so for instance, you guys know David Icke um, the guy who believes that the world is controlled by camouflaged reptiles, right? Oh, no. Um, Nobody told me that. <laughs> it's true. Um, oh, so no. John Ronson actually teamed up with David Icke and followed him around on his lectures and became friends with him. And, and over the course of his story, you st- sort of start to see how somebody can come to believe something so outlandish and so wrong mm-hmm. and, and John Ronson just has such a, a great way of um, of telling that story from that perspective it's it's always funny and a little heartbreaking and also gives you that perspective that you probably didn't know you could ever understand mm-hmm. hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think I, I didn't include it on my list for tonight, but I almost you know picked. I have some books on my shelf that are actually you know written from the believer perspective, you know, like Darwin's Black Box from Michael Behe. Mm. I do think you do have to read the other side. Well, the nice thing about um, about them, John Ronson, um, is that he comes. John is a is a skeptic, mm-hmm. so he he kind of gets on their side. But at the end of the day, you know, he makes it very clear where he stands and where reality actually right. is. So he kind of brings you back around. So it, it's like I, sometimes I read the things that the believers are writing, and I just end up kind of angry and you know frustrated but reading john's work it's a bit more hopeful because Mm. you know at the end of the story your your narrator is still in reality yeah which i think is important Mm. i i included a book by martin gardner again just because we have to talk about martin gardner you have to you know one of like the real first modern authors of Skepticism of scientific skepticism, and he has so many excellent, uh, excellent books on the topic. But the one I chose was Science, Good, Bad, and Bogus. Uh, this is really a series of, of short essays, so it's so it's very easy to read because we have nice bite-sized pieces. He goes over a lot of parapsychology and ESP. He also talks about Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, Great fakes in science, so it's this is uh, a good one, a good introduction to the whole the difference between science and pseudoscience. When science works and when science breaks down and doesn't work, and and how how does that happen? Even scientists who get snookered or who 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 do pathological science and it breaks down. So that Martin, you know, any of Martin Gardner's books are, are would be great to for any beginning skeptic to read. But I think this is a good one dealing with that specific topic of science versus pseudoscience. Fads and Fallacies is another great one. Yeah, um, that, that, I got that on my shelf, too. That's also another awesome one. Evan, do you have any more? I'm holding here uh, just another book by James Randi, and this is one that it's almost falling apart because I've just thumbed through it so much uh, over the years. It's uh, Randi's Encyclopedia of Claims, Frauds, and Hoaxes of the Occult and Supernatural. And it's a reference book. It's a little dictionary of all these pseudoscientific claims and terms and and so forth in alphabetical order and it is just really great um and you know he brandy puts his own unique spin on some of these definitions like only he can for instance i'm going to read you the definition of ghost by james randy from the german geist for spirit a specter phantom apparition shade or wraith a figure often described as semi-transparent believed to be the remaining trace of a deceased person ghosts are the favorite subjects of scary tales designed to impress children and some adults so that just gives you a little Mm -hmm. taste of uh of how randy uh uh, takes on takes on these and um you know it's uh it's very handy some you know as i've read more and more over the years books articles and so forth and they make mention of certain people certain events uh, claims and so forth that uh, that i'm not familiar with i've pulled this book off the shelf and randy's had it right there at my fingertips Mm -hmm. and the other nice thing about this book is that um you can go online to randy's website and in the past couple years he has put it up online for free at his website the entire encyclopedia with some additional entries so uh not only is it uh, an excellent reference to have as a book but it's also available entirely online for free for everybody so can't say enough about that rebecca you got another one uh sure how about stiff by mary roach Um, yeah such a, a fabulous 
kind of journey um, because Mary Roach, she's not Is a believer. The porn industry. <laughs> uh, wrong book. Wrong uh, oh, about the, the dead bodies. Right there, you go. Oh yeah, that was um, that was a good one too. The one about the dead bodies. That's not about the porn industry right. as well. Right. Um, <laughs> Mary Mary Roach is lovely because she's um, she has a great sense of humor. She's kind of sarcastic, and the book is all about um, her journey to find out what happens to. Um, to your body after you die and she she's not like you know uh she's not a a dyed in the wool skeptic so it's kind of hard to explain because in in one sense i feel like she's very much a, a true skeptic where she does she really doesn't know and she makes it clear throughout the book when she's questioning people um like her whole I don't know, her whole persona is just genuinely trying to seek answers and trying things on and, you know, figuring out what's what in the world. It, it's it's tough to explain her style. I just recommend you, you, you read that. Um, so I, I recommend you check out Stiff and also Spook, which is um, her investigation of the afterlife. And again, she's just very genuine and open, but at the same time, She's not going to get suckered, and she uh, she looks into psychic mediums and and all sorts of stuff. It's it's mm-hmm. a really fascinating journey, so I definitely recommend those. My next one is a book by Joe Nickel called Crime Science, and again, Joe has I don't know he's up to eighteen or so books to his name. Uh, all excellent yeah. skeptical books. I mean, Joe is Joe's good for like the technical aspects of skepticism, like how to investigate photography. Uh, you know, Joe really brings in his uh, expertise as an investigator. Crime Science again, it's it's another book that's more about science than anything else, but it's just about how uh, technically, you know, how um, criminologists and investigators use science in order to investigate claims, in order to test hypotheses and their theories. Uh, and it's again, it's a good journey. And Joe is, is a very talented writer. But I, again, I, I recommend, it's just my stand-in for any of Joe's books are, 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 are worthy to read. Um, he's the man. Yeah, he's a very prolific writer. And, uh, so yeah, I, very I, prolific. I recommend any of his books. Is there any? Is there anybody big that we've missed? Just a big, yeah. There's there's one. Well, I'm sure there's probably dozens. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many. I mean, it really is hard to to, to come down to uh, this kind of a short list. We're trying to be representative. And, and yeah, but there's there's one that we have to say, or else I'm going to get yelled at, and bad that astronomy. is bad astronomy, bad astronomy. Bad astronomy by my darling Phil Play. Everybody right. needs to read it. You know, whether you're interested in moon hoaxers or not. Phil explains astronomy in in a fun and funny way. Mm-hmm. You you have to have it. That's all there is to it. Um, and I, I do want to add one, t- another one too, uh, by Niles Eldridge, "The Triumph of Evolution and the Failure of Creationism," which, as the name implies, really is about two things. It is about why evolution is a triumph as a scientific theory. You know, not just why is it correct, but also why has it been a successful theory, and what makes it. A, th- a scientific theory successful, you know, it's powerful. It makes predictions. It has tremendous explanatory power. And why creationism is an utter failure as an idea, as a uh, and as a science, because it, it's not a science. Eldridge has written other books I've, I've, that I've read. Every book of his that I've read has been uh, has been excellent. He's a great writer. And in the in the same field, you know, natural history and evolution. 
of course, we have to mention Stephen Jay Gould. So if you're interested in that, in, in the natural sciences, all of Gould's books are, are, are incredible. So you have, to read at least, you have to read at least one of them. Definitely. And, you know, talk about anybody big that we missed, you know, we've got to re- mention Richard Dawkins, of course. Oh, yeah. The Ancestor's Tale is thick and sometimes difficult, but worth it. And The Selfish Gene is a, is a classic now in evolutionary books. So, hmm. And I'm sure we missed some out there, but this is... Oh, yeah. We can't discuss them all, but I think this is a, this is a good sort of representative Oh, sampling. Christopher Hitchens, you know, uh, The Missionary Position, fabulous. Mother Teresa. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we talked to him about that when we interviewed him too. What a great what, title! What, what Hitchens brings is, he, mm. you know, what, what I really like about Hitchens and our discussion with him, and and books like the Missionary Position is that, is he's such a skeptical journalist. It's like yeah. applying skepticism mm. to journalism. You don't just take for granted that the story you're being told is true. You have to ask the question: Is this really true? Is this woman really as saintly as everybody believes? And that people just don't ask that question, and he does. Steve, on that note. We should also mention Gerald Posner's uh, book, Case Closed, in, yeah, in no, his it's like, it, skeptical and scientific investigation into the into the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. And uh, you know, what, what if if that book teaches you nothing else is that you know, throw out how a journalist needs to absolutely throw out all preconceived mm-hmm. notions when going into an an, inve- an investigation if they really want to be you know honest and and true to the story and then just report on the findings report on the facts report on the data in the end and in the end the data uh along with you know a lot of other evidence and uh right. background history about Oswald definitely was yeah. single shooter and it was uh, and it was yeah, he did what nobody did. else really... did which was actually build a case for oswald being the mm. shooter forget about all the conspiracy theories or, or knocking down the conspiracy theories how about just looking at oswald oswald and what i love about gerald posner is that he just does such research i mean his research on the kennedy assassination was so thorough and impeccable he actually indexed the entire Warren Commission. I mean, he did a service to all future scholars who ever want to do research and go to primary uh, sources on the Kennedy assassination because you know, he just spends so much time you know, actually going through all the primary sources. You just have to respect that. Absolutely. Also, we have to answer the actual question that was asked, which is any skeptical journals or, or magazines that we recommend. There's no. really only two... <laughs> magazines that I'm aware of that are dedicated to skepticism, and that's Skeptic, which is published by Michael Shermer and the Skeptic Society, and the Skeptical Inquirer, which is published by the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And then there's, you know, you could get science magazines, like Scientific American. Yeah, yeah. Scientific general science American. magazines, yeah. I think Scientific American is Nature. my favorite. But, um, yeah. Discover. Discover's okay. I don't like some of the editorial choices they make. They, they yeah. Or they're soft on pseudoscience sometimes. Def- yeah, not, yeah, definitely not at the level of Scientific American. But yeah. still- I think Seed is great. Yep. Seed? Read yeah. Seed? Yeah, I, I recently yep. picked that up. Man, I really enjoyed that. Wow. Yeah. And you can get that online at seedmagazine.com. Oh, very cool. Well, you can get a lot of the articles on that. I mean, or you can subscribe. <laughs> It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fake, and then I challenge my skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Uh, There's no theme this week, and here is the first item. 
Item number one. For the first time, scientists have filmed a single electron. Item number two. A new study finds that some species of bats have internal magnetic fields that aid them in locating prey. And item number three. Forensic scientists have discovered how to track a person's travel by examining their hair. Rebecca, go first. Okay. So for the first time, scientists have filmed a single electron. That certainly, uh, that sounds pretty cool. Um, I can see it happening. Let's see. Um, some species of bats have internal magnetic fields that aid them in locating prey. Um, internal magnetic field. I have no idea how that would work. Um, so that's a little suspicious. Forensic scientists have discovered how to track a person's travel by examining their hair. That I can totally believe um, for a number of reasons, mostly due to those hair drug tests. I am going to go with, uh, geez, it's between one and two. I'm going to say two. That's just an internal magnetic field. Yeah, that seems weird to me. I don't. I don't think that's true. I'm. I'm going to say bats. Uh, the, the bat thing is fake. Okay, Bob. Let's see, first time scientists have filmed a single electron. Didn't they film an electron like seven months ago? This. This really isn't new. Um, the magnetic field with the bats. I have. Um, I, I remember hearing about how c- certain animals have, um, say, a bit of of metal or something, or a magnetic piece of metal in there in their head that they can use to orient themselves yeah, fish to mercury, magnetic, yeah. f- magnetic fields. Um, that kind of seems related to that. Uh, so I, th- I, think that, I think that might be science. Three, track a person's travel by examining their hair. Well, yeah, I could see how the environment uh, would impact, would impact uh, the chemicals on your hair. So that, so that makes sense to me. I'm going to go with the electron one, though, for various okay. reasons. Okay, Evan? Well, first time scientists have filmed a single electron. That just um that's a, that's a pretty open statement sort of, you know. I mean, yes, there was a first time that scientists filmed a single electron unless it didn't happen yet, but I don't think it matters when it happened. It probably did happen. Bats in the internal magnetic fields. I'm kind of dubious about that. And then forensic scientists have discovered how to track a person's travel by examining their hair. I don't know how they've done that. And I would otherwise probably guess that that's fiction, but I think that's the curveball, and I'm going to say the magnetic fields in bats is fiction. Okay. So you all agree that forensic scientists have discovered how to track a person's travel by examining their hair, and that is science. And you guys are correct. This is you know, nothing water. new. Your, you know, things in your environment or that you eat or drink get incorporated into your, into your hair, and because your hair grows slowly, it's kind of as a record of, of your past. Uh, what they did was they mapped isotope concentrations in drinking water. And they can detect those isotopes in your hair, and they could tell the general region that you have traveled to and when you were there based upon you know where in your hair it appears. So, for example, they could tell if you've been traveling recently to the northwest or to the southeast. So, you know, and, and the obvious application to to criminology is that, you know, if you were in the location or the general area of uh, of a crime when it was occurred, they could tell. So that's pretty well. Cool. 
There was a uh, a murder victim found uh, mm-hmm. recently, and they tracked uh, her movements. Um, right. So, yeah, it's a slightly different um, aspect of it. It's not tracking the potential killer, but tracking the victim to find uh, – they, they, in this case, found that she had traveled up and down the, the West Coast, and so they were able to kind of pinpoint her location when she died and uh, helped them figure out who she had run in with along – the way. So. Yeah, that's, that, that's the case they discuss. But, but once you've done the isotope mapping, you can use this for lots of applications. Right, yeah. right. Um, see, no, I wasn't in Florida back then. Well, let's find out if you were in Florida. <laughs> but, Steve, is this a person's travel all over the world? or The is isotope map is of the United States. But, of course, this could apply to the whole world. This is, you have to have the map, right? You need, the, you need to compare it to something. So you, you need to just know, like, by taking so- soil and water samples – you know what isotopes are are in a specific region. Mm. So I'm sure this this will be extended to uh, to other locations, but for now they have the United States mapped out. What about bottled water? Right. So if you're going to go on a crime spree across the country, take bottled water with you. Don't <laughs> yeah. drink the local water. That's right. That's a good idea. Oh, I mean, uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh, let's go to number two. A new study finds that some species of bats have internal magnetic fields that aid them in locating prey. And Bob, you thought this one was science. And Evan and Rebecca, you thought this one was fiction. And this one is fiction. This is the fake. Uh-huh. Uh, I got Bob on, on what I was hoping to get you on. It is true that, that <laughs> birds, um, some birds have magnetite. Uh, a little piece of that is somewhere in them, in their brain or something, and that does orient them to the magnetic field lines of the Earth, and they could actually use that. You mean in, bats? Uh, birds. It was discovered uh, originally in birds. Okay. There is a new study which has discovered that in a certain species of bats, but that's the new study showing that there are bat species that have that. Um, and what they did was they exposed bats to um, a magnetic pulse. This is Dr. Richard Holland from Leeds Faculty. In, in order that was, that was oriented either the same as the Earth's magnetic field or, or different. And about half of the bats that, ha- that were exposed, exposed to the pulse that was oriented different from the Earth's magnetic field lines, um, they lost their ability to find their way home. So it screwed up their navigation. Aww. None of the ones that had it in, in line with the magnetic field uh, they, they all retained their ability to navigate back to, back to home. So the hypothesis is that the pulse in, in, in the bats you know, moved or changed the orientation of the magnetite and screwed them up. You know, so then they, they thought that the, their, their magnetic direction sense was then off. So they, it, it screwed up their, uh, their location. So nothing to do with, with prey. That was the bit that I, that I, I added or made up. But that is cool that you know, birds and now bats have little magnets inside them that they use to navigate by the Earth's magnetic field. That's cool. That mm. is cool. Very cool. Uh, which means that number one is, is science. For the first time, scientists have filmed a single electron. And that is science. And that is totally cool. Now, Bob, I think what you're thinking of from seven months ago, and this was actually a science or fiction item that I used, was physicists film an electron's movement. Oh, that's right. And yeah. but not the electron. Now they say that they've actually photographed the electron itself. Now the trick with photographing an electron, um, of course, they're getting it to stand still. They're really tiny. <laughs> you can't get electrons to stand still, so they're really tiny. But it's actually also that they're really fast. 
Um, does anybody know how long it takes for an electron to circle the nucleus of an atom? Four foot one. Yes, one over 36 thousandths of a second. One over 36 thousandths, I'm not sure. One to the <laughs> negative 18th seconds, an attosecond. Or it's actually like 150 attoseconds. I'm not sure if that translates to what you said. So uh, physicist Johann Moritzson of the Lund University is quoted as saying that an attosecond compared to a second is the same as a second compared to the age of the universe. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's tiny, tiny. Right. Fast. It's really a short amount of time. Um, so 150 attoseconds. So that's, that was the real, the real challenge. But they, they figured out a way to do it. They were able to film a single oscillation of an electron and they have a is video. There a avail- is we'll that have a link. Available? There's a video. There's an actual video. So we'll video. We'll, uh, we'll we'll link to that in, in the article. They the the trick was using extremely short flashes of light to capture the electron in motion. Technology developed within the last few years. The ability to generate extremely short pulses of intense laser light called attosecond pulses, and that did the job. That's wild. Uh, Evan, you are taking over for Jay for the quote for the week. Yep. Let's hear it. Humanity has the stars in its future, and that future is too important to be lost under the burden of juvenile folly and ignorant superstition. James Randi. James, the amazing Randi. I've heard of him. He gets it so right so many times. uh, James (laughs) Randi. I wasn't going to go there. That's Jay's bit. (laughs) Yeah. He loves that bit. I don't know that anybody else does, but Jay loves it. No, it's just Steve him. Steve always but... giggle when he does it. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> don't tell Jay that. So Jay. Thank God Jay doesn't actually listen to the show. <laughs> Jay will be back next week, and he better have some tales for us as well as a coconut bra. Um, <laughs> but I will be away next week. We're just doing these serial tropical vacations. Yeah, uh, yeah when's my turn? But I, I will. Uh, I will be. I'm so dedicated. I will. I will be recording. The, the Skeptic's Guide from vacation in Florida. You rock. Uh, so I, w- I will be here next week. Cool. Thank God. We'll have a full cast next week. Then. Yes, yes, we will. It's very exciting. Thanks, everyone, for joining me. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Doctor. Good night. Had a good time. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.